0: Well hi there, it's great to be with you. We are starting a new series today called Wisdom for Life and we're going to be looking at the wisdom, some of the wisdom literature in the middle of the Bible Um, we're going to be looking at the book of Proverbs and then later on in the series a bit at the book of Job and the book of Ecclesiastes as well but today we're going to be starting our series Wisdom for Life and if you have a, a Bible do you want to turn to the book of Proverbs and chapter 31, Proverbs chapter 31. I don't know about you but These times are extremely unsettling and traumatic for most of us, I suspect, and this is a time when we need wisdom to know how to live well. I'm I'm finding myself asking questions that I hadn't even thought of a month ago or six months ago, and 2020 so far has been a bit of a crazy year. It, it, It has raised questions, it has put us in situations that perhaps we never anticipated being in, and there are all kinds of new sorts of situations to which we're having to adapt and learn how to, what does wisdom look like here? What does it look like to lead a godly, wise life of insight and understanding in this generation, in this moment? 2020 already has seen the Brexit bill becoming law. Do you remember that? We used to talk a lot about Brexit. That was back. We've seen a president get impeached. We've seen a global pandemic. We've seen a mass lockdown. We've seen... Racist massive publicity to racist injustices and killings and police brutality and riots and curfews, and who knows what it's even going to be next week. This has been a very challenging year so far, and that's without mentioning all the things that are going on to our brothers and sisters in Zimbabwe or in Hong Kong or in India or wherever. I mean, this has been a tough few months, friends. And if you're like me, you are daily having to confront different situations which make you think, I haven't. I'm not trained for this, like I didn't, this isn't what I came into the Christian life, I didn't think it was going to be this. And I think that's true to some degree to probably, for probably all of us, and in that sort of situation, many of us are confused and discombobulated and just tired, exhausted, right? And we need wisdom from God to know how to live well, we need wisdom for today, and we need wisdom for life. And by the grace of God, he knew that we would. And he has put at the very center of scripture three books of wisdom which talk about issues of life and death and meaning and evil and how to live and they're going to really help us, God willing, in this series as we look at them together. The books of Job, Ecclesiastes, and as I said, we begin with Proverbs and Proverbs chapter 31. So we're going to spend a bit of time in this series trying to mine these texts for wisdom from God for life for today in our lives. And we're going to start, as I say, with the book of Proverbs. So I just wanted to make a couple of comments before we jump into the text about how the book of Proverbs works, generally speaking, because... I mean, one, of them, one of these comments is obvious, the other one's less so. The obvious comment, if you've read Proverbs before, it'll probably be clear to you that the book of Proverbs is a book of guidelines and principles and not a book of guarantees and promises, right? So, take an example. It is generally true, it's a guideline, it's a principle that people who work hard gather more, a lot more crops than people who are lazy, right? That's generally true. In most areas of life, that works but it's not a guarantee. It's not a promise that this will always happen. It's a statement about the way that the world generally is. God's world leans that way, but it's not always true in every case because there might be all kinds of reasons why somebody might be very lazy and still have a lot of money or someone might work very hard and have none. There's all sorts of things that might be in the mix You know oppression and injustice or generational legacy or whatever that may mean that somebody could be very lazy and end up with lots of money or vice versa and so it's a general principle but it's not a guarantee we could say very similar things i think about parenting proverbs talks a fair bit about parenting it says if you're a wise godly parent generally you will produce wise and godly children that's not always true right you get a lot of wise godly parents whose kids leave the faith and make terrible choices. And, by the grace of God, and I cling to this in hope, there are parents who make terrible decisions whose children still come through for God. So, it's a general principle. It's usually true, but it's not a guarantee. That's the first comment to make about the book. And the second comment to make about Proverbs, which is perhaps a little bit less obvious, is that Proverbs has a plot. The book is basically the story of a father who is a king telling his young son who is going to be king this is how you need to live and you have a choice between two women right so there are there's basically four, four main characters in the book lots of smaller ones there's the dad there's the son and then there's the two women he can choose lady wisdom he says choose her and lady folly or lady foolishness don't choose her and the, the plot in many ways of the book is a young man presented with those choices by his dad and the counsel of the father to choose the wise rather than the foolish the embodiment of wisdom rather than foolishness and in that big plot we then meet lots of smaller characters we meet the sluggard which is a great name Um, We meet the scoffer, we meet the whisperer or the gossip, we meet the drunk and the adulteress and the diligent and the wise and all of these different characters come up but they're really helping us see the fork in the road this young man has to face between choosing wisdom and foolishness who are both represented as women. And at the end of the book we find to our joy that the son has chosen well and he has chosen the wife of noble character, the excellent wife, Lady Wisdom. And that's how the book ends. And we're going to see that as we read. So let's read now Proverbs chapter 31, beginning at verse 1.
1: The words of King Limuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, O limuel It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, Judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. and beauty is vain but a woman who fears the lord is to be praised give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates this is the word of the lord amen
0: and this passage in many ways summarizes the whole message of the book of proverbs and particularly this the bit about the wife of noble character but it starts with these interesting 8 or 9 verses of a mother speaking to her son king lemuel and the mother is saying to the son, do not spend your life womanizing and drinking, because if you do, you will pervert the rights of the afflicted. Instead, what you've got to do is you've got to speak up for the silent, the mute, the people who can't speak for themselves, and the vulnerable. He says, "Open," She says, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Verse 9. And tragically, the last two weeks have given us plenty of examples of what this does and does not look like. Some people in power, faced with the trampling of the rights of the afflicted, some people in power have said nothing. Others have said things that make the situation worse, like law and order, or when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Or on one occasion... Use rubber bullets to disperse a crowd who's protesting, sent the horses in, sent the tear gas in, in order that he can walk across the street to have a photo op holding a Bible in front of a church. And of course, then brandishing a Bible in front of the world, a Bible which contains the words of King Lemuel to his son Open your mouth for the destitute and the mute and the afflicted. What are you doing? I just, I think King Lemuel's mother would have something to say about the way that that book was brandished that day. What are you doing, oh my son? What are you doing? Don't give your strength to... Don't be a womanizer. Don't be a drunk. Don't use your power that way. Instead, give your power to speak for the people who can't speak for themselves and to champion justice for the oppressed. Open your mouth. Defend the poor. Judge with righteousness. That's how I'd like to have met King Lemuel's mother, wouldn't you? She sounds like a great woman. And she's speaking to her son, who is about to be a ruler. You must make sure... That you exercise the power given you wisely. It's a, a message here for all of us, right? Not just for those in power, but particularly those who have a lot of power and can use it for the good of those who are downtrodden. And that's how the, that's how the chapter begins. That's like a sort of leading introduction, in a way, to what we then find for the rest of the chapter, which is a description of the excellent wife, the famous wife of noble character. And... We know that this is meant to serve as a conclusion to the rest of the book, uh, because what the writer's done is to arrange it, in our terms, as like an A to Z. Right? What they've done is there's 22 verses in the poem, and each of those 22 verses begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Right? They have 22 letters, not 26, but this is, in other words, the first verse begins with an A, the second with a B, the third with a G, and all the way down the alphabet. And That really helps us because that says that the writer is trying to present us with an A to Z of wisdom. It's not just the description of an individual woman. And it's actually helpful that we know that because otherwise we might read the entire chapter as if it was just a description of the kind of wife a young man should choose. And of course, it does mean that. We can and should read this at an individual level. That's helpful. I did when I was thinking about getting married to Rachel. I almost read Proverbs 31 and reflected on it and thought, yeah, Rachel's like that. Rachel is a woman of valor, a woman of strength, a woman of nobility and honor like this. And so, and praise God, that's how she's turned out to be. And and I'm grateful to God for that. So it's good to read it at an individual level. Many of you have seen me do this before. But we can read the Bible at multiple levels. There is an individual level here. But the individual level sits within a a much bigger picture, which is that this is not just about the kind of fiancé you should choose, young man. This is about the the woman-lady wisdom that you should choose. This is what she is like. This is like a conclusion, as I said, to the plot of Proverbs, where you have a choice between folly and wisdom, and you're going to choose wisdom. So this is a description not just of a really great young lady. This is a description of the embodiment of wisdom in a woman. So it's not just saying to young men, choose a fiancé like this. It's saying to all of us, male, female, old, young, single, married, saying to all of us, this is what wisdom is like. Choose her and reject foolishness. And I actually think we can read it at yet an even bigger level than that. I think we can read the description then of wisdom as embedded inside an even bigger level, which is to say that the whole Bible is actually about and it's actually about the choice that a man has made of a bride. It's about the choice that Jesus makes for His bride, and the the Bible, like the Book of Proverbs, ends with the selection of a wife of noble character who is excellent and praiseworthy in all her ways, who is blemishless and spotless and more precious than jewels. And the Bible ends with the union and the marriage of the husband. And the bride, who through his sacrifice for her, has been made radiant. That's the church. And I think we can read Proverbs at all three levels. I think we can say, yeah, this is a a description of what women can and should be like. This is a description of what men are looking for in a woman. It's also a description of what we're all looking for in wisdom. And ultimately, I think it's a description of the church of Jesus Christ, whom Jesus has made like this through what he's done for us. So I hope that helps you even orient yourself in much of what we're now going to say about what wisdom looks like. So at different levels, this is a description of a good wife and lady wisdom and the church all at once. But so what does wisdom look like? What makes people speak so well of this excellent wife? And there are four things in particular that stand out to me as I'm reading it there's actually many many and there's 22 verses right but the four key themes that come across to me as I'm reading it the first one is what characterizes wisdom is strength strength and that might not be the first attribute you might think that the bible would speak of a woman who was noble But that's how the Bible speaks. And again, you see this embodied in women like Ruth and Esther and Hannah and Mary throughout Scripture. And this is a woman of strength, right? Verse 17, she dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. Verse 25, strength and dignity are her clothing and she laughs at times to come. That's such a beautiful phrase, isn't it? This is a kind of strength that is not basically about aggression and muscles, let alone about violence, which is how in much of the ancient and modern world you might think about strength, this is a strength that is about resilience and dignity and actually hope for the future. Right? She laughs at times to come because she knows God is going to do well for her. Right? This is a kind of strength that doesn't look so much like this or like this, but perhaps a bit more like this. Or even like this. That's what strength is in the wife of noble character. That's what strength is in the Christian life as well. Strength in Christianity is defined by the way Jesus uses his strength, not by the way that the world uses theirs. I was reading a, a book, I mean this is going to sound very nerdy, I am a, I guess you all knew I was a nerd, but I was reading a book recently about the, <laughs> the kind of wood that they use to build ships to sail around the world, and before they made everything of metal, of course, they made, made things out of wood, and what kind of wood was the strongest and most robust that they would use? And it talked about how they would look, and in this country when they were building ships, it talked how they would look for wood that had grown on oak trees that were in very windy areas. Because the oak tree that had been planted in a very windy hillside where it got buffeted by the wind all the time, by being buffeted back and forth, it just got stronger and stronger and stronger. Whereas in parts of the country that were more sheltered, the oak trees would not be as robust because they hadn't been buffeted by circumstance and pressure. And there's something of that to strength in scripture, isn't there? There's something of, I'm, this woman, wisdom herself, even the church, stands as battered by circumstance, as oppressed and pressed down on from every side, but as they do, actually become stronger through being tested, through being shaken. Through being having the powers of the wind try and uproot her and say, no, I'm standing firm in the midst of this storm. My roots are deep in God and I'm just getting bigger and stronger and I'm the kind of tree now out of whom you can make mighty seagoing vessels because I've been made strong through testing. That's the nature of strength in much of scripture and it's the nature of this woman. So the first sign of wisdom in that sense is strength. The second one is diligence. Look at verse 13. She works with willing hands verse 15 she rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household verse 18 her lamp doesn't go out at night verse 27 she doesn't eat the bread of idleness there's a lot of references in this little section aren't there to diligence to hard work and wisdom is always going to involve diligence in biblical thinking and certainly in the book of proverbs That you read the book of Proverbs, wisdom and hard work go hand in glove. You don't find lazy people regarded as wise, and you find hardworking people almost always are, because there is something very godly about diligence, about hunkering down and getting on with it and working hard. And that's something you'll find throughout the book of Proverbs. And it's kind of it repeatedly comes up as we see, you know, long rants against the sluggard. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Look at the ants, and look at what wisdom looks like. They organize themselves, they work hard, and you're just lying there being mm. This is one of my favourite propositions. It says that, that as a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns in its bed. Like Arr! it's just such a great image. And it's the writer is saying, you, you've got to see how foolish laziness is. And you've got to see how wise. Diligences. And interestingly, again, another book I've been reading during lockdown, I've had a chance to read a bit in lockdown, and uh, another book I was reading talking about uh, the historian Niall Ferguson talking about the difference in work ethic relative to religious belief. And it's very interesting. He, as a historian, I don't think writing as a Christian as far as I know, but describing the fact that actually the work ethic of Christianity and He's making the case in some sections Protestant Christianity is quite noticeably different from the work ethic in post-Christian society and that basically he makes the case that Europe has got lazier in terms of numbers of hours worked in a year and all sorts of other metrics, but Europe has got lazier as Christianity has faded which I found really fascinating. He, he's not, he never makes any reference to Proverbs or, in fact, really to the Bible in this case. He just gets out charts and figures, but he says this is one of the interesting things you can see is there is a connection between people's Christianity and their work ethic. Which, And then he says, and of course, China is going up and up and up in work ethic at the same time as it's becoming more Christianized, which is a really interesting comment he's making in his argument. And so I, I find it just reassuring in some ways to know there is, this connection's always been there. Goes right the way back to the book of Proverbs 3,000 years back. But diligence poses, I think, a particular challenge for us in the specific season we're in at the moment. For many of us, diligence is disconnected from our income in a way that it isn't normally, right? Because a combination of what the virus is doing and lockdown and all the other various factors in the nation at the moment mean that actually in both directions, our work ethic is disconnected from our income. There are some people who are working harder than ever and aren't earning anymore. There are quite a lot of people who are earning just as much as they were and are doing far less work than they ever were. Do you see? that there is It's weird that the way society works at this moment in time has severs what is a pretty natural link through most of history between the amount you work and the amount you earn. Now, some of that's good, right? Some of it's good. for various elements of that development in the nation we're in and the context we're in at the moment but for most of history it would have been too obvious to need to say of course if you work hard you're going to be able to get your crops more than the person who doesn't do anything but for many of us that's a particularly pressing challenge now and we might find temptation to laziness and idleness in the season we're in some of us are thinking that's not my problem great but there might be some of us who actually are as our productivity is not being monitored in the same way, because we're working at home rather than seen by other people, the temptation to be lazy or idle might be pretty strong. And the writer of Proverbs saying, "If you, the woman of wisdom, is a diligent person, the the the, the wise Christian life looks like hard work." And we rest as well. We rest one day in seven. Praise God. That's what God willing we're doing right now. We are resting and refreshing ourselves in the goodness of God. But there's a lot of work to be done as well. And that's the natural state of being in this world. And the writer of Proverbs says that's what wisdom looks like. The third thing wisdom looks like, it looks like compassion. Verse 20. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. Verse 26. The teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Strength, wisdom, looks like compassion. And in our culture, and in many cultures, strength and compassion can look like they're almost at opposite ends of a spectrum, right? Strength feels like it's hard and merciless, and compassion and kindness look soft and weak. And that's often how people think about it, that there's this way of strength and then there's the way of kindness and compassion. But in scripture, the opposite is true. It's not just that that, that, that uh, spectrum disintegrates, it's that the opposite is actually true. But the strongest people, obviously, ultimately, the Lord God himself, the strongest people, the ones with the most power, are the most compassionate. And those with power have been given that power to use, as we've already mentioned, on behalf of the powerless And the ultimate example of that is, of course, the cross, where the creator of the universe comes and lays down all of the mighty signs of strength and power he has. And instead comes and says, I'm going to exercise compassion on these people because they can't save themselves. And he's the kind of person who on his way to the cross would have one of his friends get a sword out and try and defend him. He says, what are you doing? Put your sword away. I could whistle and thousands of legions of angels would destroy all these guys. I don't need your strength. I'm coming to serve these people in compassion. I'm coming to wash feet. I'm coming to die for them. I am the ultimate in strength and the ultimate in compassion together. And then even as he's walking towards the cross, there are women weeping over his fate. And he turns to them and he says, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. It's an incredible display of compassion, yet coming from the ultimate in strength. There is nothing and no one stronger than the one who calls the stars into being and sustains them by the word of his power, as we saw a few weeks ago, and yet here he is, expressing compassion on every last person in humanity, even the ones, especially the ones who are killing him. And so we see wisdom is an embodiment, not just of strength and diligence, but also of compassion and kindness and then finally the fourth characteristic of wisdom we see in this woman is fear but notice the right kind of fear right notice what this woman fears and what she doesn't fear right? it says in verse 21 she's not afraid of snow for her household that is she's not afraid of the elements she's not afraid that her family's going to get cold or be unable to support themselves verse 25 she laughs at times to come as we've seen She's not afraid of the future. She's not afraid of the weather or the elements. She's not afraid of threats. What's she afraid of? She fears the Lord. She fears the Lord. Verse 30, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. That's how this writer encapsulates not just the ideal fiancé, He's not. Just, he is saying to young men, don't look just for charm and beauty. You want to look for a woman who fears God. Of course, he's saying that to young men. And if you're a young man today, considering whether or not to get married, that's what you're looking for. But this is not just speaking to young men. This is speaking to all of us, saying you need to choose wisdom, and you need you need to know that wisdom is defined not by charm and beauty in you, in anybody else, in celebrities. In people you might aspire to be. That's not what wisdom looks like. Wisdom looks like the fear of the Lord. Because if you fear the Lord, you don't have to fear the snow. Now, you don't have to fear the future. You can laugh at times to come if you fear the Lord. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the woman who fears the Lord is greatly to be praised. You fear God. You don't need to fear anything else. And So the life of wisdom is a life of strength and diligence and compassion. But it's also a life of the fear of of the Lord so this passage isn't just talking to young men this passage is talking to all of us about the life of wisdom and it's also talking about what the church of Jesus Christ is ultimately called to be and if the Bible stopped with this chapter I think that'd be pretty intimidating wouldn't it right I would read that and I'd think oh Lord that's not me I'm not that strong Right? Many of us know that. I'm not that. We're not that strong. We're not as resilient or as diligent as we want to be. Especially in times like this, we find ourselves exhausted and afraid with much less probably hope and maybe even less compassion than we hoped we might have. And I feel that and I expect many of us do. We can see wisdom ahead of us and think, yeah, I know that's what I want to be. I, I want to be that kind of person as well. But she feels beyond our reach, given all that's going on, like an unattainable ideal rather than a practical reality. But the Bible doesn't stop there. If the Bible stopped there, scary, intimidating, unreachable. But the Bible doesn't stop there. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful or of noble birth But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what's low and despised in the world, even things that aren't, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. And righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Do you see, God is not just calling you towards wisdom today. He's not just saying, hey, wouldn't you like to be like this? He's telling you that in Christ Jesus, he has become wisdom for you. He's saying you have been incorporated into Christ in whom is found all wisdom. When you are weak, he is strong for you. When you are lazy, he is diligent for you. When you are heartless, when you don't have it in you to stretch out your heart towards people who are not like you. He is compassionate on your behalf. When you are afraid, he is brave. When you are foolish, he is so wise. And because we are in him, we, the church, have become the excellent wife that Jesus was looking for. We have become more precious than jewels. We have become clothed with strength and dignity, able to serve the poor and illustrate wisdom in our actions and our speech and laugh at the days to come and be blessed by our children. Because of Jesus, we can laugh into the future, even in spite of our trials, because we know that our King is coming and we know that his bride will be glorious because of what he has done for her. So let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we ask that we might be filled with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May we be strengthened with all power according to your glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. And may we give thanks to you who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of your saints in light. Amen.